this is an iconic patch we wear. For those officers that have had the opportunity to travel uh, anywhere in this country, they know it. They, they know the way other police departments look at our police department. It's an honor that we embrace, and, and we're going to take the lead on this. We're going to take point position, and we are going to push a message of empathy, compassion, and support. And we're going to have that message delivered by the right people and, and do everything we can to, to overcorrect and, and change culture and get us back to middle and get us back to safe for ourselves and for our families. But it's going to take all of us. It is absolutely going to take all of us, but it's worth it. Our families are worth it. We as a department, as as a police force, have been told to have this type of attitude feelings towards the public. We want to be more empathetic. We want to be reaching out, making connections. But... Yes, we are starting to have this conversation. Well, we need to have that with our own officers. We need to treat them like we want them to treat our citizens. So it is important that we pay attention to their emotional health, to their mental health, to their physical health overall, if we want them to be successful whenever they're making citizen contacts. I uh, popped the trunk retrieve my rifle and when I look over the trunk I see officers in the intersection that were ducking behind their cars yelling at me get out of there get out of there he's right there I saw bullet holes in the in the glass and the pillar just so you realize how close I was uh, or we were to to the shooter he was actually around the corner applying tourniquets when we rolled up So when you think of what the brain is being exposed to when you are having that front row seat to something really traumatic, it's going to show up for you. It's not something you decide. The limbic system is very quick and it's, it's designed to call you to action and it allows you to be really good at what you do. There's a consequence to the stress response. The benefits are, again, it helps you do what you need to do very efficiently, but then what goes up must come down and it's, it's, it's like a seesaw. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast, brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. If you don't like what's being said, change the conversation. Don Draper. For years, decades, the first responder community didn't have a conversation about wellness. Whether it's emotional, financial, physical, spiritual, first responders are told to toughen up, bury it, get over it. The next incident the next act of violence awaits, and it truly does. 
the world of the first responder never stops. The critical incidents, the violence, the major accidents with mangled bodies, the taking the job home affecting home life, ruining relationships with their spouse or the kids. First responders are so used to saving people, sometimes they don't stop to think they may need to save themselves. The Dallas Police Department is long overdue a revamp in its approach to wellness. Chief Garcia mandated a change. After months of meetings and hard discussions and putting heads together, we were finally moving forward with a new unit, the OWL Initiative. OWLs are symbolic of wisdom, education, time, and transition. Education of overall wellness, emotional, physical, spiritual, and financial wellness is paramount. Time is of the essence in officers' wellness. An officers transitioning from a poor state of wellness to a better, more equipped, better version of themselves. And here to do that, the Dallas PD is proud to present the new Dallas PD Wellness Unit. Today we're having a roundtable to discuss this program. We're sitting down with the Assistant Chief of Police, Ruben Ramirez, Lieutenant Lisette Rivera, and Sergeant Omar Figueroa. Chief Ramirez, Lieutenant Rivera, and Sergeant Figueroa, thank you for joining us and welcome to the OWL. Glad to be here. We also have a very special guest co-host that came in uh, from Frisco, Texas, but by way of California. We're not holding that against her. Dr. Heather Twadell. It's her uh, second time on this podcast. Uh, Doc, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about FIRST again. I know a lot of the listeners have already heard about your organization, and you're also one of the ATO counselors. Yes, so FIRST is a comprehensive wellness program for first responders and their family members. So when you think of comprehensive, you have to think of all of the ways that this job takes a toll on your whole system. So we equipped our team up with uh, first responder psychologists, therapists, um, strength and conditioning coaches, physical therapists, nutrition, basically everything needed to help you guys navigate the career that many can't do, won't do, um, because our goal is to help you rebound as quickly as possible from the things you endure. Um, I wish we could take away some of the stuff that you guys endure, but it comes with the territory. So instead, we have to be very strategic with how we prepare you for it, how we recover you from it. Um, And the goal is to keep you healthy because you can have a healthy life and do this type of work, but not without awareness, intentionality and a good team around you. So that's where first comes into play. Doc, how long have you been doing this? Gosh, so I well, like you said, I did move from California, um, but when I lived in California, let's see, I graduated in 2011, um, and so I've been doing this type of work since then. I did work with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department before moving to Texas as a law enforcement psychologist, and once I got to Texas, kind of did a little North Texas tour, checking out what departments have when it comes to the preventative side as well as the recovery side. And that's really where FIRST um, originated and FIRST has been up and running for about three years now. And what is your doctorate in? Forensic psychology. 
but I specialize in working with first responders and their family members. Um, and then I'm also, you know, first responder family member myself, dad and brother, police officers, moms and nurse, other brothers in private security. Sister-in-law was a dispatcher. So we're a fun group. <laughs> yeah. You've seen a, They've seen a lot of trauma. Yes. Yes. So, Doc, um, when you did your tour of North Texas, what, did, what was your initial thoughts of the state of, of the departments in, in this area? Yeah, what I thought was, um, you know, and, and you know the pillars of first are prepare and to recover. So I always have an ear out for when we talk about resilience and wellness, which they're such buzzwords right now. And when you sit down with many, they have a hard time actually saying how they actually provide that. Um, and so when I did the, my little North Texas tour, I think departments have gotten good at the recovery column, um, either through things like EAP or debriefs, um, and obviously, you know, the therapy through knowing other resources, but they're just, there's not enough on the prepare side. Um, I think peer teams is where you come in on the endure column the individuals who step forward when they know their peers have gone through something to help them make sure they, you know, walk that path as tactfully as possible. So again, they can recover quickly. But when it comes to preparing officers and first responders, um, I do feel like we are definitely behind on that. And we have been for a long time, which as a first responder psychologist, it's frustrating because we know so much about what repeated trauma and threat does to the brain. And we, um, we have to share that information because I always say, you know, individuals in this line of work, you're highly trainable. You guys tend to be very disciplined. And if we give you the skill set, you will practice it and you will get really good at what you do. So why are we leaving off the component of, you know, understanding, you know, skills training when it comes to navigating trauma and threat? That if we give that to you at the front end of it, and yes, I'm talking about the academy. Day one, there were, should really be a foundation there. Um, you guys will do something with that information. Or at least, you know, we can feel good that at least you have it. And if you don't do something with it, at least we tried, right? Um, and so that's where I feel like North Texas, Texas um, departments can be better at. But that's why I'm really excited to see what Dallas is doing with something like the OWL Initiative. Because you're not just waiting for things to get bad. Um, you're not just sitting around waiting for people to reach out. You are trying to provide information, provide resources, get ahead of it. And that's really refreshing. Um, and I'm excited to see you guys kind of set the bar for others to follow, I hope. That's the goal. And Chief Ramirez, um, can you talk about a little bit about how, how serious is this chief? The man, you know, he gave you this task several months ago. How serious he is about this uh, officer wellness? Well, I think he's very serious about it. Um, this was a, a subject that we've talked about for a while now. I think it originally came up a, at least over 10 months ago. And it was, it was talked about after a series of internal affairs investigations where we continued to see officers uh, coming in for a disciplinary hearing and really talking about, um, you know, that they were, they were, the discipline hearing was often about three different subjects. It was either alcohol related it was anger related or there was some sort of really just um uh, poor choice in relationship and and we kept seeing those trends and um after several of those hearings or the chief and i talked and and july 7th came up, came up several times in the hearings it's just something that the officers were carrying and so um he asked me to to 
to do an assessment, to take a look at the state of wellness in the Dallas Police Department. How are we doing as a department? What's provided? What's available to officers? Um, just really uh, just an overall of, of where are we in, in terms of wellness. Uh, uh, and so um, it was something that he noticed early on. Um, and we set out to do a series of focus groups, met with commanders, we met with special ops, investigators, patrol officers, and really just asked them, you know, where are you? Um, what kind of, uh, how do you feel the department's supporting you? Um, you know, what is your overall wellness? Uh, you know, where do, where, do you, where do you gauge yourself? And, you know, again, we continued to hear uh, about July 7th, came up a lot. Um, we continued to hear uh, about struggles and challenges and just kind of feeling like you're alone just to uh, kind of plow through. And they had these, uh, these arbitrary timelines that, you know, when I get out of patrol, it'll be better. Or when I, you know, when I get to investigations, it'll be better. Or when I get to uh, supervisor, it'll be better. When I get to retirement, it'll be better. And, you know, I, I felt like uh, being the bureau chief over investigations, um, I, I supervise a lot of detectives. And I was hearing these same things from detectives. And, and our focus groups were with supervisors and, and, and upper level uh, command as well. And everyone was chasing an arbitrary uh, timeline. So I, I reported back to the chief, told him that, you know, I really don't think uh, we're, we're, we're in a good place. I think there's a lot of things we're carrying. I think there's a lot of hurt uh, still in, inside this department. And he just immediately said, uh, build something. And he says, uh, do what you got to do, you know, um, but uh, put something together. And so you know, I called in a focus group. We reached out to a few people, people that I knew were people uh, who cared about this department, uh, people of influence, people of character. And, and uh, we started mapping this thing out. But uh, anyway, to answer your question, yeah, the, the chief was, has absolutely uh, been behind this initiative. He's given us the, the green light to, to not only uh, compile a team, uh, conduct our focus groups, but, but now, as you know, he's, he's, he's authorized a lieutenant, a sergeant, uh, five officers at least uh, to start this thing and and uh, and I think there's a there's a lot of momentum uh, a lot of support for this program uh, coming from the top down so uh, I think it, I think it's got a lot of potential with all the uh, the focus group and all the data that you received from that why did you believe like a proactive response was needed for this and how are we going to go about this yeah so one of our assessments was just kind of looking at what we do offer in the Dallas Police Department and and so, you know, we all know that there is a psychological services unit, and we know that if our officers are involved in a, in a critical incident or an officer-involved shooting, there's a, a process that's in place that will send our officers, uh, you know, to, to psychological services. And, and that's one component. And, and I think uh, in a large way, I think that they're, you know, they're holding it down and doing that piece. Um, we've also, some of us have heard that there is a, a new system that the department is implementing um, that uh, we call early intervention. And what early intervention is, is it's, it's basically a, a, uh, a platform that measures officers against their peers and looks for differences in the amount of vacation time they have, the amount of activity they have, the amount of um, uh, use of force uh, complaints. And it's looking for people that are outliers uh, as an indicator that there may be someone who, who is in need. And then if officers uh, flag on that system, they will be part of a uh, 
uh, they'll they'll be offered a seminar that goes on for a series of you know different timelines. It could be 30 days, 60 days, but it offers resources and other things. Uh, that that's that's something that has we've had in the department in the past. There's been different modifications of it. There's a new one that that's being worked on. Um, I think it's had some success in, for the people that uh, that have completed the program. But I think as a department, we look at it very often as punitive. We look at it as something that we're being mandated to do. Something that um, you know we're being you know we're kind of being identified, and, and no one really, uh, I think, at least on the front end, wants it. And so those are the two platforms that we have. Those are the two mechanisms that we have in place in the Dallas Police Department that will get someone to services. But neither of those, I don't, I don't think, are, are broadly looked at favorably. So what we needed to build was something that was incredibly proactive and forward-thinking, something that reached our officers before they were in a crisis. Um, and it needed to be reached at in a manner that... that uh, you know, that, that supported and, and, you know, or in a manner that our officers would relate to. And this is where, this is where our wellness unit, I think, is incredibly unique. And, and this, is, uh, this is where we're going to create some distance and, and separation in, in what other departments have done, I believe. Because personally, I believe, and, 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 and a lot of my feelings are, are my own personal feelings, but, but they were supported by what we learned in these focus groups. And, and, and what we learned was that the Dallas Police Department might be the most unique police department in the in the United States of America as it relates to um, the need for a, a a full throttle bell and whistle robust wellness unit and the reason is because uh, th this department is you know we have had uh, you know just as recent as as July 7th I mean we took a, a sucker punch on July 7th and, and and it was something that the entire country hadn't seen before and, and I think that, um, you know, in fairness, we really didn't know how to respond to that type of, of, of blindsided, uh, you know, shot. And I think when you consider the, just the massive amount of support from not only the country, but even you know, throughout the world that, that came here to Dallas to help us um, during this, this time when we were still probably in shock and pretty stunned, um, we saw an overwhelming amount of support. We saw an uh, we, we were really in a, in a blur while we buried, you know, five officers for a couple weeks. It took us to do that. Um, and then we, uh, you know, almost immediately, I mean, there, you know, we were, it was like there were protests still occurring and uh, we were, we were almost, you know, we were back to answering calls again. And, and, and I think all of us kind of looked and said, well, wait a minute, you know, what do we do here? And, and so what we did, the one thing that, that, you know, unfortunately, we think we've done for 140 years in this police department, and we just buried it. We just rubbed some dirt on it and got back out there and started answering calls again. And and I think that you know all of that is uh, you know I think it has been, but I think it, and it continues to manifest. And so um, you know, again, just I, I give that back context to say that that if there is any department in the country that needs. Uh, you know, a forward thinking, proactive, all hands on deck approach. It's Dallas PD. So, so when we look at our wellness unit and we say we are going to be uh, proactive, we're no longer going to wait for an officer to be in a critical incident or for an officer to be in a crisis. I think we've got those areas covered actually on the Dallas Police Department, the, 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 the critical incident and the crisis. Um, we want to get to them before they're in that, in that situation. And, and we want to take all of these resources 
that are available out there from you know throughout the country the state and locally and we want to serve it up to our officers we want to make it easy for them we want to take out all of the searching and the exploring and the research that might need to be done to get to services and we want to bring it to them and then we want to take out the financial component of it we're going to find those resources and we're going to find funding and um, and the ATO and the Blue Guardian are two great sources that are right here, you know, in our PD that are that are already stepping up, and, and we're gonna we're gonna make this thing affordable for officers. We're gonna make it available to officers, and then probably the most important key uh, to our initiative and our wellness unit is that we're not gonna deliver this from a department standpoint alone. It's not gonna come from HR, and it's not gonna come from the chief or the command staff. It's gonna come from those individual officers within this police department who are again people of character people who, who have come forward and said hey i want to help change this police department and and many of them are carrying uh, you know scars of their own and some of them are in this room and and uh it's those people who are delivering our our message it's those people who are going to take those resources to our officers and that's where you see kind of the checkpoint model um and some of the other initiatives that i don't we'll get into but um but yeah, ours is uh, ours is, is 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 it's it's unique. Um, I think we've put a lot of the focus groups uh, have put a lot into uh, the message, um, what we're going to relay, who's going to relay that message, and, and we're gonna we're gonna make a difference. We're gonna impact and, and reach those officers. Yeah, it's definitely taken a proactive approach as opposed to just waiting until somebody falls apart, and then it goes back to what Dr. T was talking about of being proactive in, a, in an approach to dealing with it. it's not just the july 7th that weigh on people it's not just an officer involved shooting it's the daily grind the going out and seeing bodies responding to accidents with mangled bodies and seeing infant deaths it's daily and then what do you have to do you finish your shift and you go back to work at least in an officer involved shooting you get some days off to, to somewhat recover but you're never going to recover fully and that's when you go see the psych doctors. But again, that's a that's a reaction to an incident, right? And some there's a lot of doctors that, of officers that do reach out to the doctors. Uh, but that's, I believe, a lot of officers need nudges to do it. And I think that's what this proactive approach, putting a bug in their ear that we, it's okay to come forward. Here's a bunch of resources. You have a bunch of officers that, like you said, are informal leaders of the department. And I believe the command staff that you put forth with lieutenant rivera and figueroa you said there's some people in the room that are affected by seven seven yeah it, you know omar figueroa he he dealt with a lot and we're going to get into into that a little bit we got sergeant Mosier. he's sitting in, sh shout out sarge he had to sit out in front of uh, headquarters for weeks uh greeting people coming up to grieve you know i mean that weighs on him um dr t uh what are your thoughts on the best practices starting to peer support and what do you think would lead what do, you, what do you think is needed for a strong foundation to get going well i think um something that you know chief ramirez just mentioned that's really important is you need to look around and pay attention to who wants to help i think when you have an authentic desire to want to help your peers that's a that's a great opportunity to find individuals like that and seek them out whether your selection process is you know letting people nominate letting people volunteer. Um, and then the foundation is you need to train them up, right? Because if they are confused about how things show up in their own life, um, it's going to be hard to help somebody else navigate that, right? And so the same way that, you know, 
first has its pillars, I encourage every peer support team to have the same type of pillars. Um, And one that I think works well is like this train, check, treat model. And I'm kind of hearing that also as you guys are speaking, where you need to make sure your peer support team is trained up on not only the impact of trauma, right, but then how it shows up. So um, Chief Ramirez, you mentioned things like alcohol and anger and decision making. A lot of times if we get to the root of that, those things are all secondary to unprocessed trauma or unprocessed pain or the heavy load of what they've been carrying for years because they didn't know how to access it and nobody told them what to do with it. And now it just shows up in these unhelpful ways. So not just the trauma piece, but how to ground yourself when your nervous system's acting up and you feel anxious at the grocery store, how to fight fairly when you are emotionally charged and saying things you don't really mean because your limbic system has gotten so good at what it does. Um, You know, things like that, we almost forget to include the skills training of how to just be a functioning human who has to deal with this oncoming of constant stress and pain that most human beings will never understand because they don't have to have that front row seat. So making sure the training is so solid so that when your peer member is interacting with another person, they're hearing things that don't throw them or don't be like, oh crap, that happens to me too and I don't even know what to do with it. But they're like, hey, let me normalize this for you. Let me speak the language, but then let me also give you some evidence-based techniques, things you can do in the moment, things that we offer. That's the training piece. Then that helps the check piece kind of almost be more natural where now that we've we've given you that front piece as a peer member, like, I'm just going to check in on you. Like, how are you using those skills? Um, what makes those skills hard to implement? Um, how are you doing with it? How's your family doing with it? And then if, you know, after we've trained them, after you're checking on them, then that's where the peer member can step in and help with now treatment. So again, it's this train, check, treat. Don't try and say it too fast, but train, check, treat. And then the treatment part, because if, if not, if we're just going after treatment, um, now we're slipping away from that proactive piece, which is not what peer members want. You know, they, they want to get ahead of it. Um, but then also knowing your resources, knowing what's available, that if someone does get to the treatment piece of it, you guys know exactly where to take them. You have that contact in place. Um, and get to know your local ERs. If you have someone in crisis, and you're bringing them in, you should have a contact at that hospital. So they're not, your officers not ending up sitting in the same room that, you know, someone who's having, you know, a meth psychotic break going on, that, that, that's not going to help. That's going to deter them to ask for help again. So it should be a private room. It should be separate. And you should have someone at that hospital staff who's trained up a little bit on this culture um, so that they know how to navigate that as as smoothly as possible for the officer. So just things like that, I think it's where peer peer members have to think a little bit outside the box um, of each of those columns. Okay, if this shows up, how are we going to help? What are the potential roadblocks? And then what are the solutions for those roadblocks? And that's where peer members, you know, get ahead of it. um, And that's going to help your peer when you do reach out or they do reach out, it's going to help them have a positive experience. Well, that's one thing. That's part of the training piece, right? Is is getting to know like your like we, that's something we we're, we're writing down notes over here is getting to know the context at your local ERs, and uh, that's important. We just recently had to do a we had to do a lot of audibles on uh, of handling handling the individual, and uh, we weren't prepared, but we had to just do it on the fly, and uh, now we know. But again, that's a learning experience, but again for the training to be proactive and have the protocol 
in place to be proactive that's getting you know that's us reaching out beforehand and trying to think of plan b c and d and e if needed right if i could also say one more thing as a peer team you know, make sure that you are tracking every month the type of interactions that you have. You keep everything de-identified and confidential, but if, let's say, you have a peer member and in the month of September, you know, 80% of their contacts had to do with alcohol, right? And and now all of a sudden you're, you're, you're seeing this trend. You have to build the trainings around what your department actually needs, right? We have to actually tailor it. So if you come back and say, gosh, we are just getting so many alcohol contacts, then that helps us understand, okay, for the next quarter, you know, maybe we should get some alcohol trainings going. Um, Or maybe we should do like a couples workshop and we focus on the impact of substance on this type of work. Um, And so that way it's, again, it's individualized, it's tailored, and it's a needs assessment for what your people need rather than this, you know, we think this, we think this is what they need. As peer members who have an insight into it, there's, there's a lot of good you can do with that information. Yeah, it's just constantly gathering data from the from the basically you're from the horse's mouth, right? You're, you, the peer supporters and the and the checkpoint folks are going to be constantly reaching out to people. We're going to get into our wellness checkpoints in a bit. Um, any kind of program we start or any program that start across the country is it's not a one size fits all, right? We're a huge department and uh, we're not as big as we once we once were but we're getting there uh we chief we kind of modeled this after san diego uh their wellness unit has been around for like 11 or 12 years and across the country it's looked at in the law enforcement world is is kind of a standard what can you talk about that sure so yeah san diego uh really they were just uh you know leading the pack and as it relates to the all hands on deck approach as to wellness and that's probably one of the things that we uh that caught our attention the most is that that they you know they they have 100 plus peer supporters uh and they um they are uh looking uh you know forward thinking proactively looking for for those opportunities to 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 reach their officers through an empathy compassion support model they're looking forward um not waiting for a crisis so that was a piece that that uh, caught our attention and and we did um we we did mirror some of their approaches they were they were helpful enough to send us their sop send us some of their models Uh, their officers have connected with our wellness unit um uh, team and and they continue to be in communication but but i think the, the the part about san diego that caught our attention was that they were it was an all hands on deck approach and and again when we look at dallas pd you know I, i can't think of another city that um, that has those those types of uh, you know that has the history that we've had in DPD from a, a crisis from a you know a major incident a city that has a, a, you know at least a top four uh, media market the scrutiny that our officers are under in a in a city like this uh, day in and day out I think uh, plays a role in, in some of the stressors and the things that they carry um, so we, we we needed something that was big and and um and we took bits and pieces of theirs and, and to start to to create ours uh, one other piece that i think we noticed in dallas pd through our focus groups was really uh what we call the, uh, the well the culture uh for one was not very receptive to the idea of um wellness the idea of therapy the idea of of uh counseling and and, and really just the discussion and that i think that's something that 
uh, is really big for other departments that are looking to build a wellness unit to understand what your culture is. And, and we have a, a very hardened culture here uh, to, to, to the idea, the concept of, of wellness. So, so that requires us to have a different approach. We can't, if we, if we got an influx of a million dollars to buy a piece of technology for wellness or, or hired an, you know, a dozen more doctors, but the department isn't receptive to the idea of it, to the, to the, the discussion of it, then I think it, would, it has less an opportunity to get where we need it to get to. So uh, the majority, uh, it's another reason why the majority of our focus is on what we call almost tilling the earth, make, trying to reach out to officers to you know through those those people of influence and have these discussions and aim to normalize the the topic and discussion of wellness and through our own personal stories and our own uh, challenges and the things we've carried uh, share you know our battle with some of these challenges and our and our um and some of the therapy we've utilized to try to normalize that discussion and and help officers see the real value in it um and, and then i think only then can we really start to 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 get some of the, the the science, the research, the therapy, and the and the help that's out there to those officers and get them to embrace it and and hopefully um, you know share it with their families? It's another piece of this that w- that we haven't touched on yet that I'm sure we will, but uh, we have neglected in policing, uh, at least in the Dallas Police Department, uh, the importance of the family and and as it relates to wellness. And we we um, if you're an officer and you're and you're carrying things. Um, you know, for the most part, I think we hire so well that, that officers can they can handle uh, a lot of it. Um, but sometimes it's when it's when your family life starts to unravel, and when you have a uh, you know a sick family member, or God forbid, a death in a family, or or even a divorce, and and when those things start to unravel, uh, that's when when you know I think our officers get into these crisis modes. And we haven't done enough to protect the families. So uh, anyway, that's 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 part of this group's initiative and focus as well. Oh yeah, definitely. And and Dr. T, you have a big focus on on you do a lot of spouse workshops, right? Yes, I think that couples workshops are so critical. Um, and I will tell you, one of the number one things when I do department wide like resiliency training, one of the number one things I have afterwards is <laughs> always someone comes up and says. Um, my wife needs to hear that almost like this. I've, I've tried to explain it to her or we don't know what's happening because again, there's these highs when I'm at work and then the lows hit and that's purely a physiological recovery period that's happening. But if I don't know what's happening and I can't explain it to him or her and she doesn't know what's happening or he doesn't know what's happening, it leaves giant question marks for a family. And I'll tell you what happens with question marks. We fill them with assumptions, and it's really sad to hear some of the assumptions family members and the first responder comes up with when we could have gotten ahead of that. That's such unnecessary suffering we're, at, we're adding because maybe now the spouse is, well, gosh, maybe it's me, or the first responder's like, maybe I'm losing my mind, maybe I'm not fit to do this. And those thoughts, your body does something with that. That's just more stress, just more pain for you to carry. Um, and so we have to get rid of the question marks inform them and then give them like things they can actually start doing today together to navigate it because trauma has a fun way of creating wedges in relationships um and so you've got it's almost like you got to prepare them for the battle so that they can get through it together and that will will bring them closer people get closer when they get when they go through hard things and that includes the couples well they have to be because they go home and they're the closest to that person and you know it we have uh, Keelan Makata sitting here, and she's married to uh, a, a Dallas officer, and she sees both 
her and her wife see both dynamics of this profession, right? Um, and they're going, they move, sell the house, newly promoted, new job. So there's a lot going on. And, uh, you know, the, your, your spouse is supposed to be your pillar, right? And when we go through these, these traumatic incidents or you know, it's be that traumatic, it just could be a daily job and you go home and if that's, if your pillar starts to crumble, it's, everything's going to crumble, right? Doc, can you briefly, briefly talk about the physiological effects from a traumatic incident? Absolutely. So when you think of what the brain is being exposed to when you are having that front row seat to something really traumatic, um, it's going to show up for you. It's not something you decide. The limbic system is very quick, and it's, it's designed to call you to action. And in order to do that, in order to plunge you into that, certain chemicals, hormones, proteins have to be released, right? And that's our fight or flight. That's the sympathetic nervous system, and it allows you to be really good at what you do. Um, but there are, there's a consequence to the stress response, right? The benefits are, again, it helps you do what you need to do very efficiently, but then what goes up must come down, and it's, it's, it's like a seesaw. So the sympathetic is when you're up, fight or flight. Parasympathetic is when you're recovering, right? And that's your rest and digest. Well, what goes up must come down. So the higher you go, like a critical incident, we know this low is coming. And it's not because something's wrong with you. It's because the body's now physically recovering from the dump that just happened. There's things you can do to make that dump worse, like pouring alcohol on it or a bunch of coffee or isolating yourself or going home and just getting it back jacked back up by video games or things like that where people don't realize you know, your brain is doing something with every experience, right? We're in that recovery to help that dip come up quicker. We need things like how your breathing matters, quickest way to communicate with your nervous system. So after that incident, you better be moving that diaphragm on your drive home, pull into that driveway, taking those deep breaths. You're calming the limbic system down. And the reason that's important is not just physiologically, we need your heart rate to chill out. We need your blood pressure to come down just for the health reasons. But when you're in that mode, the prefrontal, which is the thinking part of the brain, it's going offline, right? So if you are still very limbic, there's a chance that you're not going to be real rational when you get home. And that's where that short temper comes in. And one of the things that I mentioned that gets dumped in the system, um, we don't always hear about it. You guys hear about adrenaline and cortisol. You don't always hear about something called tachykinin. And it's a protein. And the way that it binds to the brain, the two primary ways it shows up, and this is what gets released during the stress response, Primary two ways it shows up is anxiety and irritability. So after a critical incident, you're, you're supposed to feel those things. But if you're highly critical of yourself, or maybe you have a critical spouse, or at the root of that, you both, you both are just not informed of what the response is, now we're poking at the manifestation of the trauma rather than seeking to understand what could we do to just help the trauma because it's here, it happened, maybe we take a walk, maybe you need, you just need 30 minutes when you get home, <clears throat> maybe you, <clears throat> excuse me, we need to drink some water instead of wine tonight. It's making these little decisions that can have a big impact, not only on that critical incident, but just the longevity of every time there's an incident, whether you feel okay or not, your body still just took a beating. It still just took a demand and you have to help it. That's how you're going to get through this and come out on the other side with a working liver, <laughs> blood pressure that's still in a nice range, hopefully the first marriage, um, that's how we're going to, that's how we're going to get there. 
Doc, thank you. Uh, so I want to get your thoughts on being culturally competent as a as a uh, as a therapist for for officers. Can you explain why that's so important? Well, it's so important because, um, like Chief mentioned, you know, this job is unlike any other. And I might be biased because, yes, I'm a first responder psychologist and family member, but I truly feel this is the toughest job on the planet. And what we ask of you guys over and over and over again, um, unless you understand that culture, you can't just have a good trauma background. That definitely helps. And I'm not saying that a trauma therapist can't help a first responder. But if you are a trauma therapist who's wanting to get into this culture, do some ride-alongs. Sit down with some tenured folks. Let them share some stories. Understand that this is more than just a job. This is a, an experience that is going to change everything about how they function, how they relate to others, how they see themselves, how they're able to connect traumas at the root of it. So um, if you don't have the cultural competence, again, it's kind of like we talked about that hospital situation, you know, at the ER. We have this brief window of an opportunity to get the buy-in. If, if a first responder is going to say, okay, I'm finally willing to ask for help, chances are they're probably way past <laughs> where they needed to be. They're like barely hanging on. If you, if you have that window and like, okay, here we go, and you sit them in front of a therapist who is going to ask more questions about their shift work or cry when they share the story, not saying that therapists can't have human emotions, that's healthy, but if you have that and that's one of their first experiences, what do you think that first responder is going to walk away with? Are they going to be confident that, hey, I, I, can, I think I can see some light at the end of the tunnel? Or are they going to walk away with one more evidence that, see, nobody gets it, I have to do this alone? I told you what happens when bad things show up and I share it. So they're going to walk away and possibly learn, keep my mouth shut, carry it by myself, rub some dirt on it. We're just basically sending the very message that every peer team is wanting to work against and every department is wanting to work against. And that's that stigma. Well, yeah, if, if an officer comes away from the initial contact with somebody that they're I, they're they're full of shit. They don't understand me. They don't understand my job. I'm not going to go back to that person. And it may just turn them off a total getting help from anywhere, right? Um, Chief, I want to get into the kind of responses Dallas PD have. What 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 response do we have as a department? Well, so when we were building this program, the focus group, you know, we wanted to understand um, in our efforts to normalize the discussion of wellness. We had to see what were the things that were being normalized that, that shouldn't have been. And so we, we started researching the CAD system and kind of taking a look at the amount of officers that respond to certain calls and what type of calls. So we took these three categories. We took homicides, fatality crashes, and suicides. And, and we know that on average, we respond to 230 homicides a year, around 200 fatality crashes a year, 100 suicides a year. And to each one of those responses, you have about five, maybe uh, five to 10 officers that, that will respond depending on the scene. Um, that's not counting the 7,000 ag assaults a year. It's not counting the hundreds of child abuse cases that, that officers respond to, the sex assaults. Uh, it's, it's not counting the deadly force or, or confrontations that our officers are involved in. So when we talk about trauma, uh, the, the numbers that we're producing in the Dallas Police Department on a, on a daily, weekly, yearly basis are off the charts. And 
we um, we dismiss about 99% of those calls as just part of the job. Everything the doctor was just saying. We, we just, you know, an officer can't go to a fatality, a, 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 the scene of a fatality and, and, and really, I think, comfortably come forward and say, hey, I'm having a tough time with this. Because that here in the Dallas PD and in probably in most PDs, that's considered part of the, the job. Matter of fact, we still have trainers that are answering for calls when they're training a rookie saying, hey, I'll take that, that, that signal 27 or that dead body for training purposes. I mean, we're, we're, we're just overly exposing and even uh, often unnecessarily exposing our officers to trauma and really not equipping them or, or assessing whether they're equipped to be able to, to handle it, whether they have the tools or techniques or what their strategy is to handle it. And these are where these cultures kick in, where we basically just say, rub some dirt on it, bury it, or let's go get a drink. And, uh, and these are the things that are, are, are contributing to our, our stigmas. And, I mean, I almost feel like, I don't want to go too far on a tangent here, but when we talk about uh, some of the research, the medical research that's out there and, and, you know, that says, hey, there's, you know, policing is very stressful. Um, we have these, these uh, very high suicide rate, if not the highest suicide rate, very high drug addiction. Obviously, alcohol has been the, the, the you know, that's been our poison. Um, divorce. I mean, we're, we're averaging, what, 70% in Dallas PD. It's even been up to 75% divorce rate. These, are, these have got to be symptoms to a bigger problem, but yet we continue to operate as if that's just part of the job, and it can't be any longer. And so, um, you know, these are the things that, that we're identifying, and I know a lot of Dallas police officers who are listening to this, they've already, they've already had someone reach out uh, just for these, you know, these calls that were previously looked at as normal. Um, we're no longer going to look at it just like it's just a normal part of the job and you've got to be able to deal with it. We're going to check on people and, and, and we're going to let them know we're there. So um, a lot of trauma that we're exposed to. Uh, yeah, it's just a, a lot that I think needs to be brought to the forefront. What's a cumulative effect, right? I mean, you, you could respond to 10 fatality accidents or 10 uh, homicides or five foot chases within within a week's time. It's that it's that next one that may get you. It's that next yeah. infant. You know, I talked to uh, to one of the PES, uh, it's physical evidence section for the non-police here listening, that he was talking about processing uh, the an infant uh, that uh, had had been murdered and basically beaten to death, and the infant was wearing the same diapers that his baby wore. You know, I mean that that was like twelve years ago, and he still was teary-eyed telling me about that. That's hanging over that man's head and it will forever right okay i want to get into uh the formation of this unit uh this is unlike other units because usually the hierarchy goes you have a police and senior corporal and you have a sergeant that's the direct supervisor then you have a lieutenant and then it goes to major and then it goes to uh, a deputy chief and then it goes to a two-star chief that that's that's what you are and then we have a three-star, and then uh, it goes up to the to the, the big boss. Uh, this pretty much goes directly from lieutenant straight to the top. It goes to the t- the, the two-star chief, right? That's right. That's and one of the things that we, we wanted to, to make sure that our unit, based on, on the feedback we got from our officers, uh, you know, we did hear that, hey, there's a lack of trust for, uh, for command. Mm-hmm. Um, we did hear that... Uh, you know, we don't trust uh, coming forward to HR or personnel or, 
even psych services out of fear that you know they will have some sort of responsibility to to tell the chief or tell the the department uh, you know what it is they share which is absolutely not true but nonetheless these are the concerns of our of, of our department these are the things that we learned so we wanted to make concessions in our unit for those things and so we we created this unit and we siloed it out separate from personnel separate from psych services and really uh removed as many layers of 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 supervision or chain of command as we could it's going to have a, a unit commander a lieutenant lieutenant rivera and and she will report directly to the office of the chief of police now that will be it will be to me it has me connected to it but she will have the opportunity to report directly to to the chief himself on on things that um you know that the chief needs to know if or, or authorization for um you know different fundings uh different types of approaches and strategies to our wellness unit based on what she's seeing she can get that authorization directly from the boss and that means a lot because you it cuts out the middle women and men right that yeah. and 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 within those middle women and men, you have different levels of leadership, philosophies, opinions, right? So if we make the command a lot more, it's more of a straight shot as opposed to a bunch of waiting at different levels, right? And you may have different spins put on something by the time it gets to the top, the message gets to the top, it could be different from how it started, right? And this, the, this cuts out all these layers. Uh, so you got uh, Lieutenant Rivera to uh, be the lieutenant. Lieutenant, can you tell the listener a little about yourself, why you jumped on this chance to, uh, to lead this brand new start from scratch unit, which is hard to do in any department? Can you tell us what this means to you and why you're doing it? I, I have been in the department for 22 years now. I have been very fortunate to have had the opportunity to be in different departments. I started off at Northeast Patrol. I went to um, the child abuse unit. I was there for six years. I had the opportunity to work at the city manager's office, internal affairs, back to patrol, and now here. Um, I was given this opportunity back in June, and um, I was caught off guard. It is something that I had not heard of. Uh, but uh, hearing Chief Ramirez speak about what the goals were and um, the intent behind it, I, I was very excited. I was very hopeful. Um, I understand the need that officers have, um, being that, you know, when I was in child abuse, I, I saw a lot of things that, you know, to this day still... I still affect me they don't have the same energy so I know that there's officers out there that are still struggling struggling with things so having this opportunity to be able to not just provide the resources but to normalize a conversation that it is okay to speak to a peer supporter it is okay to speak to a therapist um, it's it's a very exciting opportunity for me it's a lot of work, right? I'm seeing uh, there's a lot of uh, learning, as uh, DD likes to put it, flying a plane as we're building it, right? That's, that's exactly what it's been like for these past couple of weeks. A lot of stress, a lot of lack of sleep, a lot of uh, frustration, but yeah, we're gonna we're gonna make it happen. Uh, Sergeant Figueroa, yes, sir. Uh, so tell the listener who you are and how you got involved with this and why it's important to you. Okay, uh, my name is Omar Figueroa. Um, I got involved with the wellness unit. Actually, uh, I, I saw the 
the job come out, the, the, the post for the job come out. And I thought to myself, wow, that's, that's interesting. But I never really pictured myself in this role until uh, I actually got a phone call uh, from you, Joe. <laughs> and you, uh, you, you know, asked me to uh, consider it and to apply for the position. And um, I kind of brushed you off at first, and I was like, yeah, you know, it sounds great, but I just don't picture myself in, in, in the position. But the more I thought about it and all the experiences I've been through um, and seeing other officers suffer and, you know, similar experiences as, as, as my own, I, uh, I started really considering it, and, and I, I applied. I applied for the position. I... Um, I um, interviewed, uh, basically, uh, right before the interview, I, I had an interaction with an employee just before walking into the interview, and I had a kind of a checkpoint, uh, and I realized, man, this role is very important, and um, so I did my best in the interview, and I, I think I did well. I got I got the job, so... Yeah. Uh, I've been on the department, uh, next month will be 14 years. Um, I started out at Northwest, then I went to, uh, several, uh, special assignments, ended up at CBD, bid for Northeast when, uh, the Metro Task Force was formed and, uh, I was hand picked to, you know, come into the Metro Task Force. So I never made it to Northeast, uh, Metro Task Force over the years, uh, ended up morphing into the uh, fugitive unit. So I spent 10 years there. I uh, promoted uh, about a year and a couple months ago. And uh, one day in detail after a critical incident at uh, Southeast where I was a sergeant, uh, I realized that my officers were all rookies and that, you know, it was a shooting, and like ten people were shot, and it was one fatality. Down at Deep Ellum, was that? It? No, the, no. This one was uh, uh, Botham John. Okay. Yep. And uh, you know, this was one of those calls where I thought to myself, "Oh, here, here, here we go, another one, right? Uh, another major incident." But after you know, the sun came up, and I went home, and I slept on it, and I'm always thinking about my troops, right? And kind of picture them as my kids right <laughs> and uh trying to guide them and provide uh you know just just help and 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 help them out in any way i can so i started thinking this is their first incident how are they handling this how you know uh, how how can i help them you know so uh, next day in detail I, uh, after, you know, we did roll call and everything, I, I brought it up. I said, Hey, you know, we just had this major incident. I understand that a lot of you, for a lot of you, this is the first time that, you know, something like that you experienced something like this. You all handled yourselves well, did a great job, gave a couple of commendations and everything. But, um, I told them, look, this, this is not something that the normal per average person you know goes through and this is part of your job but at the same time it's okay not to be okay and if you need to reach out you need to talk to somebody and come talk to me i had an open door policy and i talked to everybody 
And uh, the response I got from that was uh, pretty surprising. Uh, uh, I noticed some jaws dropping in in the detail. And uh, I said, man, I'm, you know, really getting to them. And then other officers started, you know, sharing their experiences. And, and it turned into a kind of a little group therapy session, right? And uh, I think that that's what got back to you, Joe, and that's why you you uh, reached out to me and asked me to to you know apply for this position. Yeah. Well, whenever the the selection process was going on, I didn't I didn't know who all applied. <clears throat> I knew that, and I I had you know talked with Chief Ramirez before because I was doing a half foot and you know legal and half foot just kind of helping out when I could of uh, throwing out some ideas. But I was like, I was like, you know, if I want to be a part of this, I want somebody that's a strong leader, somebody that's looked up to. I think that goes further with the troops. Uh, but so when the Detective Mikado over there told me about you getting up in front of detail and, and just saying that, you, nobody told you to do that, right? You just no. you got up and you did it. You felt that you saw a need that that was important to you, and it is. And you're. We want to normalize a conversation. We want to normalize that it's okay to talk about. That's why on this podcast I like to get, you know, anybody that listens, they, they know that we talk about some really, really critical incidents and some bad things. And I've seen people that's got, you know, multiple awards for Medal of Valors break down telling a story of, a, of being there when an officer uh, got killed. I've had officers shout out Cedar Rapids, Iowa, that reach out and say, hey, I heard people the way they responded in the situation all the way from, you know, many states away. They feel that because of what they heard, it helped them react better. It's it's surprising when people hear other people are going through certain things and they're going through trauma and they're dealing with it or they're not dealing with it. I think that can resonate. And I believe it does resonate with, uh, with other officers, peers, and also civilians that don't understand us as well. Chief talked about seven, seven, and there's a lot of casualties from 7-7 that, um, that were actually there and people that were not there, right? And that's just a ripple effect through this whole city and in the country, really. Uh, can you talk about, you know, a little bit about what you experienced? Sure. Um, we were assigned just outside of, uh, of uh, downtown. Uh, Chief Brown had us sitting at a... High crime area just to be seen is basically the, the instructions that we were given. So we sat at the corner in the Mark squad car, me and my partner, uh, Miles Sheeran, um, when all of a sudden all hell broke loose and citywide assist, multiple officers down. That's what was, you know, uh, put out over the radio. Um, it seemed to me like... It, I don't know, it took me a, like a minute to get to the location to uh, the El Central College. And uh, when I turned in front of the street in front of El Centro, I saw squad cars in the intersection. Uh, and my partner, Milo, he, uh, he says, stop, 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 stop the car. I see someone down right here in front of the doors of El Centro. So uh, unbeknownst to me, later I found out... Uh, through video I watched on YouTube that I parked right in front of the shooter's vehicle. The person that was down when we ran over there uh, was uh, Officer Brent Thompson from DART PD. Uh, Milo, uh, 
jumped into you know trying to save save his life and uh started you know lifted his shirt and trying to plug holes whatever he saw with his fingers i um popped the trunk retrieved my rifle and when i look over the trunk i see officers in the intersection that were ducking behind their cars yelling at me get out of there get out of there he's right there uh, referring to the shooter so I immediately, you know, turned around and, you know, head on the swivel while Milo was trying to treat uh, Brent. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't see the shooter, but I, I, I saw, you know, bullet holes in the, in the glass, in the pillar. Uh, and obviously Brent was down right there. And uh, Milo says, hey, get the car, get the car. So I ran back to the car, uh, you know, reversed it a little bit more, and then by that time, my uh, old partner in, in uh, Fugitive Unit, uh, Joe Lopez, who's now in, in SWAT, him and Milo were putting Brent in the in the car, and uh, I I kind of froze for a second as I was, you know, put in reverse, and you look back, and, and I'm seeing this scene of, of, of Brent and the scene of his injuries. Uh, uh, I, I basically knew he wasn't going to survive and uh i kind of froze there for 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 a minute and uh sergeant from cbd just tapped me on the shoulder and said hey get out and so i jumped out of the car and kind of snapped back into it and then it it turned into let's hunt this guy down let's let's find where the hell he is um <clears throat> milo and i on, on that video i watched on youtube you can hear us on the on the radio uh saying that the shooter is now inside the El Centro College, you know, just so because there were different reports that he was in a parking garage, that it was more than one shooter, that, you know, this, that, and the other. But um, we knew he had gone in, into into the El Centro College. And so Joe, uh, Milo, and I all went in. Uh, oh, and in that video, uh, just so you realize how close I was uh, or we were to – to the shooter he was actually around the corner applying tourniquets when we rolled up because uh officer brent thompson saved our lives that day he uh he put effective rounds on him and uh this guy came prepared he had tourniquets pre-applied and he just uh tightened them up on each arm while we were dealing with brent so um when we went into the building it was pure chaos there were people just everywhere pointing different directions saying he's in there no he's over there and so unfortunately milo and i got uh separated joe went around the other side and he actually found a, a blood trail from the shooter and uh we fought well, joe followed it upstairs i went up a different stairwell and i heard more shots i was headed over in that direction and uh you know, I found out later Joe had, you know, caught up to the shooter and and he uh you know, he engaged the shooter with his nine mil because uh he he didn't have a chance to grab his rifle. And then uh, more SWAT officers started showing up and as I was heading toward the direction of the of the gunfire, I um a SWAT officer came around the corner and startled me and and he said, No, no, stay right there in case he doubles back and comes through the library it's it's all glass right there i don't know what the you know layout is on the other side so if he makes it around this side you got him he's all yours so uh i um 
I did that and uh, held there until more and more SWAT officers come, came. Um, Channel 5 sergeant actually was glued to my, my backside and grabbing my belt and just had my back the whole time, and he didn't let go of me, like, you know, just let me know that he was there. And so no one would come up behind me and, you know, try to ambush me that way. Uh, once uh, once uh, more SWAT personnel came, they started pushing us out so they can control the entire floor. And so then I said, okay, what else? There's students still in this building. Let's start clearing the building out. I don't know how many floors that is, but going up and down those stairs uh, with all the gear and the rifle and getting students out of, you know, searching and getting students out of classrooms and evacuating them from the building, that, that uh, yeah, I had spaghetti legs <laughs> once uh, that the night was done. But um, it was a big relief once uh, Chief Brown gave the order to take them out. And uh, once uh, once uh, you, you felt that explosion, um, it was just a big relief, like we could breathe again. And uh, you know, it was it was a really tough night. You know, it's an anatomy of a traumatic event, right, Doc? I mean, it's this this event for Dallas. In, in you know, we didn't even talk about the the shooter that attacked headquarters right that's kind of forgotten because of what happened the following year in the 7-7 this this city is a magnet for traumatic events and the officers that affect that are affected and that's one reason omar that i i know you and i know what people think of you right and and your actions at night you're kind of one of those officers that uh like like baines keeping a keeping glass box and breaking case of emergency right you you act and you perform well and people look up to you and your leadership is because of how you react and your message that you're speaking from real life experiences right and you know i thank you for sharing that um when i started this podcast it basically was because of uh, dr t's uh class the three-day course and we got one coming up in october and she had a panel of 10 first responders talking about their incidents talking about it doesn't have to be critical and say it's not not everybody's going to have a 7-7 story like like uh sarge does they're going to have bouts with alcoholism bouts with destroying their home life and marriages and and one or two three divorces right and and a lot of it's such constant trauma that this job pours on us it's like concrete on our shoulders it just keeps coming it doesn't stop even if you promote you're going to go when you're, you you get off the streets you're going to become a detective Go to homicide, or go to capers, go to robbery. You're going to see violence every day. You're going to have to watch body cam videos. You're going to be watching. It's like watching a nonstop horror movie of violence, right? Absolutely. It's like watching a Saw movie on on repeat. Um, I want to get into the model for the for this uh, for the owl the uh, the wellness unit education. I have a survey, the newsletter, which is the owl. And I want to get into the wellness checkpoints. Doc, you got something you want to dive in on? Yeah, I just wanted to, um, same thing, Omar, thank you for sharing that. I just wanted to come back to using that story. And then, you know, Joe, like you mentioned, the stories of others and why we highlight it at the three-day is there's no way around it. Like pain is a part of this job and pain is a part of this life. And when we are in it, we do the best we can. And your training kicks in and your conditioning kicks in. Um, but 
one thing that I think is so beautiful about peer teams and about what Dallas is doing, because Dallas, you know, Chief, like you mentioned, has endured a lot of pain, and unfortunately there's more pain ahead, is when you can acknowledge the pain, slow down enough to acknowledge it. Because sometimes, like, we just bulldoze, and you guys just bulldoze. Like, this call happens, and then, like you said, those numbers are horrific. Like, now we're next, the next call's coming, and, like, we just keep going. That when we slow down enough, um, you can acknowledge maybe what you needed. And that's the beautiful thing about peer members is you can say, well, gosh, when, when I endured this type of pain, you know, I didn't have this in place or no one said this to me or no one you know, told me this was normal. And that's one of the things that peer members can do is they can use their pain and use those really tough moments to teach them something to that they can then provide that. What they didn't get, they can provide it to somebody else. And when you share stories like that um, and hearing, you know, obviously how well-respected you are to then also use that to show vulnerability the way that you did with those team members of yours, that's how your pain now gets to do good. And um, I'm just really appreciative of a team like this any peer team members out there, that's that's what this is about. It's not sugarcoating it. It's sitting with it, but then actually doing something with it. As opposed to just not doing anything and just, no, just that's 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 what you signed up for, right? right? Nobody signed up to get uh, to get ambushed while they're out protecting people. That's that's uh, you know basically protesting against them. That's part of uh, America. You can pro- peacefully protest, right? Um, I want to get into the. Uh, the education piece uh that the education piece uh for the uh the wellness unit it's still in the works there's a lot of plans uh chief we're we're gonna have rookies right we you talk about tilling the earth the earth the soil is the rookies right they're they're the ones just coming into the this profession they they've they kind of know what they're getting into but they really don't and to get them educated and get them influenced more importantly and and have a normalize this normalize this the, the overall wellness whether it's emotional financial physical uh, spiritual uh, for, for a lot of folks you got to normalize that conversation to understand when people hear you know uh, troops respected troops like uh, Omar and many others tell their stories of of their experience and also they were greatly affected by it I think getting getting in at the rookies and on the ground level of this department and because that did not go on when we hired on chief i mean yeah absolutely um you know they're the future of our department we've got to we've got to assess where we have maybe improperly prepared our our previous uh generations and make sure that we're equipping these officers with the right information the right mindset uh the the tillin does need to occur throughout the, the entire department too and i think one of those uh first steps is you know we talk about resilience uh often but i think one of the things that we never really talk about is that while yes there may be different resilient uh, levels or uh, within an individual officer it's also a moving scale you can be incredibly resilient and then and and if the bottom falls out of it at home you know with some of those other things that we've mentioned whether it's a divorce or or a, you know a, a sick family member a sick child uh, your 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 resilience level or your ability to be resilient tanks and 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 so this is the, again this is one of the this is where we missed in policing it's not a matter of how gritty you are or how tough you are there, there are things that are going to happen in your life that are going to affect your ability to 
to be exposed to the violence that we're exposed to or, or be able to operate at an extremely high level in, in a critical incident. I mean, you know, yes, there's value in the, in the training and the mindset and the muscle memory, but it is a moving scale. And then that's the human part of this job that has been left out of the equation for, for far too long. And it's, and it's not going to be left out of our model. The education piece has to be on all fronts. It's got to be at the academy. It's got to be at in-service. It's got to be at, at uh, FTO school, sergeant school, and it's got to come from different people. Don't They don't need to hear it from the academy staff. Uh, they don't need to only hear it from uh, command staff. They've, they've got to hear it from uh, from everyone. It, it, again, it's an all-hands-on-deck, all-front, multifaceted approach. And uh, But the education piece is, is going to be key in our in our efforts to normalize. Yeah, I like, and we've also discussed too about uh, setting up eventually like mandatory debriefs for rookies after each phase of training because each phase they learn something different and have different experiences, just to check on them. And, and we and we also have we're, we're looking into the the family approach too of uh, having a family night and, and and because the family the the support that's the that's the main support structure, right? You're going to have your peers and your coworkers and your friends here, but having when you go home and you have to deal with kids, girlfriend, wife, or whatever, it, you have to. That has to be strong and, and stable. Um, yeah, the the education is going to be the biggest piece, and that's and that's another proactive approach, right? Because I remember when, when when I went through in '97, it was barely touched on it was almost like a couple hour block and it wasn't talked about again and then when i went through training at southeast it was never talked about nobody talked about it a 4500 badge was my first and fourth phase trainer he was not talking about wellness okay um we had a survey uh we sent out to the department and just like any survey what it's on average like 35 or less percent of an organization will actually respond to a survey so you're getting data from only the type of people that take a survey but you could still get valuable data in that and i think we i think we have we haven't totally combed through it all but we some common things that i i noticed were people talking about finances finances also anxiety lack of sleep um there was a lot of spiritual pieces some officers uh you know there's there's a lot of things they talked about uh we, we kept seeing the 10-hour shift come up and um that's that's being looked at at, at different fronts and um and that's not our our unit's not looking at that, but the department is. But there's all these little nuggets I believe that we got from feedback from officers that can that we can delve into and see what we can do about it. The financial piece we're going to get into that because there's a lot of officers that get right out of the academy, they go and buy a kick-ass Raptor truck, and they're paying 800 bucks a month, and they're living paycheck to paycheck. You know, and uh, working extra jobs four or five days a week, which adds more stress and more exhaustion on top of the normal day-to-day police shift. So there's that's that's a, some components we're gonna have to really uh, look into. But that was, you know, we're hopefully when we do the next surveys, we're gonna have more response. And you know, we want to listen to this feedback because this feedback are the people that are on the ground shouting up, screaming. They need help in their own way, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you, you brought up something interesting though that when we when we look at just to illustrate how in depth we're looking at at our model and what we need to do uh yes the surveys are incredibly important we did get a lot of uh, uh responses regarding su- more support from the department we got a, a response about wanting uh debriefs after critical incidents i thought that was interesting um 
nutrition came up a lot and and so these are these are things that are really you know these are important and moving forward i think we're going to have a lot a lot higher turnout on our on our you know once we prove that we're going to respond to them with with something i think the department will see that uh, how valuable that piece is but i want to share this one story then this was part of our during our quest to to map out this unit we looked at at some vendors for a piece of technology uh to overlay on our wellness unit something that would connect officers uh, and, and sworn and non-sworn to services to whether it's peer support or counseling or tele, telehealth, teletherapy. And, and, and one of the vendors we met with um, is, is a company that, is, uh, that was built off of, um, well, I'll tell you the company's name is Proteam, and they're, they're built uh, um, ex-professional athletes are building this, this platform. And it was a really good, it's a really good platform. It's something that we were, we were looking at and considering, but I thought what was most fascinating about this vendor was that there were professional athletes who were building this this resiliency uh, platform, and they and I asked him why. I said, "Why, why did do professional athletes see the need for this?" And he said, "Because we're seeing more and more increases in professional sports of people who are who are uh, turning to alcohol, drug abuse. We're seeing uh, suicides, and we're seeing divorce rates, and and really just dependency on substance and these other things, which is obviously not not very you know it's fairly similar to what we're seeing." And so I said, "Interesting." I said, "Can you tell me why?" Why, why are professional athletes experiencing this more often? Here's what his response was. He said, he said, it is because when you are a professional athlete, from the moment you become a professional athlete, he said, if you are first string, then second string is breathing down your neck, waiting for you to make a mistake, trying to take your, your spot. Your second string, third string's doing it. He goes, and then on. He goes, fourth string, the scout team's looking at your spot. He goes, you're being judged by coaches. You're being judged by fans, by the media. There's this constant scrutiny and pressure on you that that type of pressure is, is, is impacting our athletes' ability to operate at the level that we expect. So you, you think about that, and then you, you kind of put that over the side and think about what it is we're doing to our police officers in this country, right? They, um, there's there's an increased pressure on them uh, in a number of different ways, but they're scrutinized constantly. Uh, they're wearing body cams and dash cams. Uh, the media is, is videoing them. Uh, you know, citizens are videoing them on every call. There's policies and pressures and stressors that are that are piled on them. Right. But then you, you compare those two models. Right. And you say, OK, well, uh, I can see that, you know, the similarities in what he's describing and those pressures and those stressors. But then you look at the professional athlete and, and you and, and you say, wow, we've been telling our police officers, um, you know, uh, you need to have a good diet, good nutrition balance. Those athletes have probably the best diet and nutrition uh, balance on the planet. And, and we say stuff to them like, um, you know, make sure you exercise. There's nobody exercising more than they are um we say things like you got to maintain your finances because uh that's what's causing a lot of this they don't have problems with finances usually on the professional uh athlete side so so why is it that they have all the things that we're teaching our police officers to have but yet they are still having these these challenges and these and, and the, developing these, these these mental illnesses and these stigmas right and i think it's it's a lot of what we've discussed here it's we've got to look at this differently these are not cookie cutter responses. Everyone is unique. Uh, everyone is is carrying their own burdens. Our resilience levels fluctuate and 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 shift. And so, what I think we're building again in Dallas PD that is so unique and is going to make a difference is that this model is completely built off of empathy, compassion, and support. This is a forward thinking, a proactive initiative that is going to layer our police officers with empathy and compassion and support and it's not coming from hr it's not coming from you know any any separate bureau it's coming from these these people in this department i mean you look you well first of all 
you know, because you're one of them, uh, our checkpoint officers are, uh, you know, you find me a police department that has the team of SWAT operators on their on their peer support, proactive wellness initiative. Okay, we've got a lot of them. We've got SWAT negotiators. We've got operators. We've got helicopter pilots. We've got SWAT or homicide detectives, child abuse detectives, some real players from patrol. I mean, the guys that are and gals that are just at a different level. These are the people that are coming forward and saying, hey, we want to be part of this initiative. We're not putting out a, a cattle call and saying, hey, come forward if you want to. Um, they're being referred by the, the people that we've already identified who are checkpoint officers. And and uh, and, and again, it's it's a uh, it's unique, but it's got all of us, uh, you know, and everybody who gets who, who actually sees the model thinking that we've got a, you know, a lot of potential here. So there's some it's some good stuff for sure. Absolutely. Doc, you want to weigh in on this? Well, yeah, you know, I, I love the approach of viewing first responders as athletes because they are. Um, and I think one of the interesting things is when you talk about what these, you know, professional athletes have surrounding them, like usually the, this really great team of experts when it comes to like nutrition and recovery and their PT and they're, they're, they're ready to work them. Um, yet they still end up with some of these issues. You know, I think this is where we can again learn and have this really good both a top-down and then a bottom-up approach. So when I say that, what I mean is if you have the healthiest lifestyle, but what's going on in your head is not just, yes, the trauma rattles people, but how you talk to yourself, how critical you are. When you walk away from any situation in your life, like what do you actually do with it? What what do you tell yourself as to why? Um, We've got to make sure that there's awareness of your body's listening. And when you have even one negative thought about yourself, there is a consequence to that. And then your body carries it. Um, So you have to make sure this top-down approach is there of of, of focusing on that. But then the bottom-up approach, when you think of an athlete, if they get injured and all the pressure you just described, they're out. Right. And when you think of a first responder, one of the biggest threats to all of you is that vessel of yours going out on you. Right. And working with first responders, as long as I have, I will tell you, many of them say that going out on an injury is some of the darkest days of their life because they give and they give and they give everything to this job. And eventually their body whether they have the mental grit to carry them through, your body's going to show up in some way. And next thing you, you know, you have an injury. And the next thing you know, you're out. And the next thing you know, your nervous system that is used to go, 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 go is now sitting. And then now all of a sudden, where's my purpose? Like, what am I supposed to do with this? And then the head gets into a really dark place. And then let's throw some painkillers and alcohol on top of it, right? So when we talk about that proactive piece, the physical demands of what this job does, because sometimes obviously we know the mental demands, right? But the physical demands, we have to be ahead of that as well. And I think peer teams can very much be responsible for that. Whether it's linking up with your, if you guys have fitness coordinators, and if you don't, find the healthy peer coordinators and let them take on like that fitness coordination role as well. Um, because you've got to keep your people physically fit. That's like not an option. Like that should, that has to be mandatory. So how we do that, is has to be um, important but then how we address those who are injured that's where a peer team can be really um, helpful because when you don't have someone you give and this is supposed to be your family that you give a lot more to than maybe your own personal family and then all of a sudden you're out because of an injury and all of a sudden it's crickets that's devastating for many and this you know pedestal of i 
I thought people cared or I thought that I was part of something. And now maybe people reached out the first week, but now no one's reaching out. Peer members have to stay on top of someone who's injured and out because if we're not careful, that's where you can lose a really skilled, you know, tenured, respectable individual to something like an injury. And a lot of it's not just the injury making them feel that way. A lot of it is the mental toll of where's this support that we all talked about, right? It's like, it's like when you have a death in the family, <clears throat> everybody's bringing over dishes to eat, right? That first couple of weeks, and then after that... Crickets. Yeah, crickets. <laughs> yeah. And pe- well, the, the problem is, though, it, it's like on the department. 7-7 seven, seven happens. You know what happens? The ball keeps bouncing. And life keeps bouncing, and personal lives keep going moving forward and and i think you're you're right in that you have to stay on to it in this while this the wellness uh the wellness unit the one of the biggest uh the biggest components of it i think is going to be the most successful is the wellness checkpoints uh chief has already identified several types of incidents throughout the department that go on daily that command staff gets these incidents and then we send them out to the checkpoint people and the peer supporters that are handpicked and then they reach out to these officers just to see if they're okay. I have called like probably close to 90 officers now. And I've had some people walk up. that I didn't even call them. They walked up to me and uh, had like a, at the desk, have a, have a checkpoint. Same with Fig when he was about the interview. It helps. The, and, it, and it really doesn't matter. The people that I've contacted, they've been tenured veterans and also brand new rookies. There's been some people that have, it, the response has been almost it's overwhelming of a positive. I've had one officer, they, they responded to, uh, to a, a teen that, that hung herself and it really bothered him. He, I sat and talked to him for almost an hour and he said it was, he has a daughter the same age and it really affected him. Cause it, he says like a, it looked like a doll hanging from a tree. And it was just, this guy is hurting. He's going to have to carry this. But he said, this is long overdue for this department. And I've had so many people tell me that. And, the, like I said, the wellness checkpoints, um, I think they are going to be our, they're going to be our meat and the potatoes are going to be a lot of, we're going to have a lot of meat and potatoes in this, but I think the wellness checkpoints and staying on that and learning from it and creating an infectious culture that it's okay to talk about and not just suffer in silence, right? Uh, Chief, you, early on in, in your career, you've been on what, 27, going on 27? Going on 27. Okay. You... You, you told me before offline about an incident that there was one officer that was way ahead of the curve on, on, on checkpoints, um, what, 22 years ago? And can you talk about that incident and, and how that affected you? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know, again, when we were looking at the, how we were going to create this model and what we could do different, we all were forced to really look at, you know, introspectively on ourselves and see what is it that has impacted us? What are we carrying? What what kind of things have we done that that that, were, that worked and, and what didn't? This is how we kind of were coming to the table mapping out this model. Uh, one of the things that I w- remembered, um, it's really weird. I, I was thinking one morning, I was like, you know, what can we do differently? And and um, I I thought about this officer. Um, his name I'm put his name out there. Lee Bollinger is his name for those that remember him. He's been mentioned before by Baines. He, he did the same thing with Baines that you're oh. about to describe. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's good to know. So, so Lee, uh, for those that know him, um, you know he he uh, he was he was a a, a salty you know rough edged uh, field trainer with he he was uh, he was rough, um, good 
smart, good cop, but but he was rough around the edges. He was he was definitely spoke his mind and 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 had uh, you know some of the the negative stuff with him. But um, twenty two years ago, uh, I, I you know I recall it was a it was you know I had been on the police department for a few years and I was on an evening shift and I had I had gotten a um, a critical missing call about a missing nine year old uh, girl. And um, anyway, so I, I was. I was driving to the apartment complex and, and I pulled into an apartment complex and was shining my spotlight on the buildings, kind of looking at where, um, where the address was. And when a group of people, you know, I seem, you know, come, I see come running towards me. Uh, anyway, so I mark out, uh, let the dispatch know where I'm at and where the other responding officer, you know, let them know where I'm at. And so this man, uh, and he was a, he was a Turkish, uh, it was a Turkish community. He, he spoke very little English, but but he hands me this little girl, and she's she's a uh, you know she's drenched, and she's in water, and and he says she has little life left, and, and so anyway, the 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 backstory is that she was a critical missing. She had she had left the apartment and fallen into a swimming pool, and the parents had found her. So he had he had uh, handed her to me, and 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 again you know says she has a little life left. So. You know, you're you're trying to do your CPR as best you recall, uh, and you know you're calling for an ambulance and and trying to get people to back up so you can see if she's got some you know if, if she's still alive or not. And and uh, this scene, you know, flashes to uh, you know as I recall it. Uh, you know, the next thing you know, DFR is there, and and um, uh, Adolfo Rios was my was the re- other respondent officer, and, and he did CPR on her as well. Uh, so DFR gets there, they're working on her. Then we're at the hospital scene, and, and I have this this memory of just doctors surrounding her uh, in the ER, uh, working on her. And then it kind of, you know, the only other thing I recall is when they told the family that that she uh, that she didn't make it. And so those kind of those three little scenes had just always, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of carried those. Never really got, you know, ever forgot that scene. Don't talk about it much, or uh, you know, obviously, but but uh, but here's what happened. Um, Next couple of days at work, I, I just recall I wasn't sleeping that good, wasn't really eating, um, kind of in a, you know, in a daze. Uh, my sergeant uh, asked me a couple of questions, you know, here and there, and, and you know, I, I easily dismissed him. You know, he's like, are you all right? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm fine. Got back out there. Well, after a couple of days of, of, you know, not really understanding why I wasn't, you know, I just didn't feel good. I wasn't eating, like I said, I wasn't sleeping. Um, the most unlikely of, of uh of officers, Lee Bollinger sends them, sends me a message to my computer, and says, um, "What's your location?" And I'm thinking, man, you know, it's the last guy I want to talk to right now. Uh, but nonetheless, I send him my intersection. Um, yeah, the intersection I'm at, and he pulls up, you know, window to window, very very curt, as you know, hey, what's going on? And I said, well, nothing, you know. And he says, hey, listen, man, that scene that you went to the other night was, uh, those are tough scenes to go to. And then he, he shares a story. He says, Ruben, when I was a, a young officer, um, I was working Central. He goes in a, there was a crash. And he, he I meant this story, I remember. He, he says that, uh, you know, I guess a pickup had crashed. It was, and it had, it had fallen on a little boy. And, and so the, the little boy, um, he said, was in shock, but he was still uh, coherent enough for him to talk to him. And that he had, he had he talked to this kid, and he knew that the kid wanted to be a fireman. And, um, and anyway, he says, uh, Reuben, that, that little boy died. He says, and I never got help. He says, I never saw anybody. He goes, and I've been angry um, my entire career. And he says, I don't want to see the same thing happen to you. And and he, you know, he knew that I was a kind of, you know, I'm a faith guy, 
generally talk about that, uh, you know, if it comes up. And he says, I know you're a faith guy. Why don't you go see somebody? Go to, a, go to that church you attend and talk to somebody. And uh, I left that intersection and drove straight to uh, a Catholic church that was down the way and knocked on the door. And, uh, and, and a priest talked to me and, 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 and I'm even going to, I'll share what this priest said, cause this is something that I've, I've carried for a, a long time that, uh, that I think, you know, I didn't realize it at the time until we really started building this unit. But, but, um, the priest says to me, I tell him the story and I say, you know, I, I just can't sleep that well. And I just, I feel bad for this family. I said, that's really all it is. I said, I just can't imagine, you know, losing your, your little nine-year-old daughter like that. And he says to me, he goes, you know, he goes, um, what you're describing is grief. He says, uh, he says, and he kind of smiled and he says, you know, you're, uh, that is, uh, that is serving and going above, uh, like I've never seen before. He says, you're carrying grief for another family that you don't even know. He goes, you're just trying to take some of the pain from them. And I thought, man, how incredibly powerful and what a different perspective that I never would have considered in, in, in all the, you know, training that we have, I would never have pivoted to look at it from that position. And it, and it helped me, um, but when I think back on, on uh, you know, 22 years ago, uh, had it not been for Lee Bollinger, um, I would have, I would have, I would have white knuckled this like everyone else. I would have rubbed some dirt on it, suppressed it, and gone on. Um, but it was Lee's checkpoint that he did uh, that that uh, really, you know, changed a lot for me. And so now, you know, 22 years later, that's uh, that's what we're putting in place. That's awesome, Doc. Uh you're up. I'm just, um, I'm just super moved by that story. And like you said, the <laughs> he was way ahead of his time when it came to wellness and knowing that those are conversations that are so important and clearly possibly even changed the way that you approach this career. And I think when we talk about, you know, resiliency, you know, the, the two things that you absolutely need in this line of work to be able to get through it and to be resilient is the first one is self-awareness. You have to be able to sit with yourself. You have to be able to ask yourself, you know, how am I doing with this? How, how am I holding this? And then only once we can identify like the what, then we can come up with the intentionality is then the how, right? So it's like, okay, how am I holding this? So maybe it's, you know, I'm angry the way that Lee said he was. Okay, what do I need when I feel anger? Maybe I need to move my body or maybe I need to share this with someone to get some perspective. How am I going to do that? I probably need to reach out or I probably need to make time for that walk today somewhere. That's how you ride the wave of it. And it changes with every incident, every shift. It's not always going to look the same because we're human and what we need changes based on where we're at. And like you said, nervous system capacity. You might take on one call and you're like, I did pretty good with that. Your nervous system had capacity for it. But then there's times in life where maybe it was just a rough month of calls or, you know, that divorce is just eating your soul and you're not real proud of how you've been with your kids lately. Oh, and then we had a call. Your nervous system's not going to have as much capacity, so you're going to feel it different. So that's why awareness and intentionality have to be your two primary go-tos. But here's the kicker. <clears throat> what we know about trauma is it interferes with our ability to be aware. Because sometimes, like you said, we're in that daze or we're just in survival mode. We're just trying to get through it. And that's where a peer can be so powerful because sometimes someone else's awareness, 
someone else seeing something that maybe we don't see in ourselves, them bringing it to our attention maybe doesn't make us fully aware, but it, it maybe cracks open the door of like, hey, you know, slow down for a minute. Or, hey, I know that was a tough call just to check in. Um, and if you have the power as a peer team to give another human a little bit of awareness, that could, that could save their career. It could save their life. Again, it was a taking a proactive approach to basically Lee comes up and snap his finger fingers to achieve to snap him out of it and consider something else that he may not have considered and he didn't understand and then moving then made him aware maybe I do need to talk to somebody that's when he went to the priest and I I think that's what this that's what the checkpoints that's the uh, that's what they are at the core is to I I really believe and I've had people Dr. T you know we've I've already recorded uh, the the uh, fireman uh, that basically reached out and said that he sought counseling because of hearing your episode and a lot of the other episodes. Some people just need a slight nudge. They're on a fence, whether they need help or not. And then when it could be a peer or just them becoming self-aware, they though I need more than what I can give to myself or what even the spouse can give or the, the a significant other or, or a family member can give. They reach out to a professional like Dr. T and try to move forward and just understand what's going on with themselves, right? Yeah, and if I can just say, um, Chief, I know you mentioned at the beginning, like mandatory debriefs, and we all know everyone kind of gets that thing in their gut. They hear the word mandatory in a department. They're like, "Eh, what are you going to make me do? But it goes back to what we just said is, um, and there was a quote, I can't remember who said it, but it did come out of a, a physical program study for, I think, Fort Worth Fire, where they said voluntary programs become no programs. And they also, research shows, that voluntary programs don't actually capture the individuals who need it the most. And it's because of that awareness piece. You might have someone who thinks they are fine, but they're in a daze in their life. And people don't know what they don't know until it's right there in front of them. And that's what I think a check is, a debrief is, a training is, it is that nudge to wake up a little bit. Um, and that nudge, Joe, like you said, can do so much. So I encourage any chief who's listening to not be afraid of making things mandatory. When we have evidence behind it and research and science, you do what you have to do for people who don't know that they need it. You could save a life. And, and a lot of things that we do, like Crusty Lee Bollinger coming up and asserting himself, it is sometimes like wrestling the keys away from a drunk driver some people don't they don't realize they're swerving all over the road and they're in the ditch get them back on the road right and, and take the keys and just and help them along the way until they snap out of it the wellness checkpoints i'm i'm really excited about that that part and i think that's going to be our bread and butter hey, lieutenant just one thing i want to add about the wellness checkpoints um this this cannot just be coming from our wellness unit or the checkpoints. I think this is a opportunity for even a two or three year officer who sees his partner who's also been on two and three years struggling, um, being able to reach out and just ask, "Hey, man, are you doing all right?" We will not hesitate to go and cover another officer whenever they are in danger. So why? Should we hesitate when we see someone who is struggling emotionally or mentally and 
like why do we do that right so let's I want to get to a point where we have the whole department being able to just reach out to their partner um, you know a supervisor to their troop and just saying hey man are you doing okay you want to talk about it let's normalize that having a peer supporter or a wellness checkpoint person or another command staff or a su- even a frontline supervisor reach out may not be enough. It may be the person sitting next to them in their car that they trust the most, right? Or the little group that they run with that recognizes something. We all know people on this department that we unfortunately at Dallas PD, we've had, we have officers that uh, get arrested for DWIs or other issues uh, off duty. And there's a lot of their core friends that go in, uh, they, they saw warning signs and they, and, and they, whether they just thought people were handling it correctly or they just didn't want to say anything. They didn't want to be, they didn't want to be that intrusive in somebody's life. They said they didn't do anything and the worst happened. Right. So taking a proactive approach and giving constant education, giving constant feelers out there with these checkpoints, that's what we want to do. Hey, Doc, you, you do something with uh, first that you do checkpoints. I, I remember hearing you talk about this. And uh, so you, which, which you can kind of go further with what y'all do and reinforce what we're thinking about doing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And first provides annual wellness checks. Um, which is basically everything we just talked about. So it is with a licensed professional, but it's not a therapy session and it's not a fitness for duty evaluations. We don't do those. Um, It's a 30 minute pause that might allow for a nudge where we can just, we use some subjective measures looking at anxiety, depression, and trauma. Um, And so I'm able to sit down with someone. My team members are able to sit down with someone for 30 minutes that can be in person or uh, via, you know, over, over telehealth. And it's just to check in to say, hey, what are your areas of concerns? Um, what are you doing about it? More importantly, is it working? And if it's not, here's some skills that maybe we can do to address it. And then what's nice is if they have any questions, they can reach out. Um, and if not, then I see them the following year and we're able to look at their measures again. And that way we're staying ahead of it. So if you know one year they scored in the mild range for anxiety, and then I see them the following year, now they're in the moderate to severe range okay, that's their body cueing us into something's going on, and then we can get ahead of it. Um, We just added in the physical component because the same way we talked about you guys just go, 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 and that takes a toll on your body, and you're not usually likely to reach out to like a physical therapist or make that appointment, but you might need it. Um, We now have with our PT on staff, um, we're able to do annual wellness checks on the PT side. So again, it's a 30-minute check-in. He uses uh, measures to kind of give you some data and some feedback, but it's your opportunity to say, hey, what areas are concerning? What are you doing about it? This might make it worse. This might make it better. If you need anything, first is here, and if not, then he can see you next year. And that way it's, again, we're taking that top-down approach with the mental health check-ins, but then also that bottom-up approach with how is the vessel how is the body holding up? Because we want to get ahead of that as well, because that can definitely lead to some of the mental health issues if we're not careful with it. Yeah, the the beauty of the checkpoints is is that you we just by doing it in um, a few months, we've got so many stories of, of people reaching out. Uh, I, I have veteran officers that have stopped me in the hall, stopped me in the in the uh on the parking garage to talk about what the wellness unit is going to do 
and they've brought up ideas to me that was I, we haven't thought of. And one thing I would like the uh, I would like to have happen is that every we have seven substations here in Dallas. The so listeners have heard me talk about all of them when they're one through seven, right? I would like to have a lockbox at every substation with the Owl logo, the beautiful Allen Holmes Owl logo, with basically like some slips, like for suggestions or feedback, and people, and you can do it anonymously. And if you say, "Hey, you may want to check on this officer," we're seeing some red flags. And once a week, the peer uh, the peer support and the and the wellness unit go out and collect these and come back and review them as a group, and. You know, we're going to have some jackassery because cops are cops, right? But we're going to get, I believe we can also get some good intelligence and some nuggets that we can implement or tweak what we're doing because we're hearing from the masses, right? We're get, we're actually going to listen to the officers that are on the, the boots on the ground, that what they're calling for. I think that's going to be a big, uh, a big thing. Sarge, you said you, uh, you recently just had a, a walk-in checkpoint on you dealt with? Yeah, yesterday it was actually uh, just a text uh, I got from a coworker, and uh, I've been out of patrol for what, three months now. And he uh, he texts me asking about my coffee pot on my desk at Southeast, and I'm like, "Is he messing with me? You know, I've been gone for three months, so he, you know he must know that you know I'm not there." So come to find out. He had also been out for for a while because he had been dealing with some things, and uh, he didn't realize that I had taken this position in, in wellness. And so, without him knowing, he tells me how you know he lost his brother during that time. So he'd been dealing with some things, and uh, you know I, I took that opportunity as 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 a checkpoint and told him, hey, you know if you need to talk to somebody, I'm here. Reach out. And he was very appreciative of, of, of that. So, you know, a checkpoint can be can come out of nowhere, and you can be talking about any old thing, and it turns into a checkpoint. And this doesn't, like like you know everyone has said, uh, it doesn't have to come from a command staff. It doesn't have to come from a supervisor. It, like you said, it could be your partner in, in your car. Who, who, other than their spouse, would know their partner better, you know, than the person that rides with them every day so don't be afraid to do that and uh you know uh, we here in the, in the wellness unit we uh want to change stigma and what it signifies right and uh so if i've i've come up with an acronym for it, it uh stigma is uh, stop the ill-gained mental attitudes and that's that's what we want to you know spread and want it to be contagious uh on the department it's decades. It's it's decades of of uh, of dealing with this kind of culture, right? It's 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 going to be a hard ship to write, and it's going to be a very slow burn and an inch by inch turning it around. And Detective Moncada, this is the first time you've been on uh, on the mic. Uh, you've listened to the podcast. Uh, you do a lot of our social media for uh, our, our posts because I'm old and I don't understand hashtags and all that. Uh, you've got a story to talk about or you something you want to get off your chest? No, I just wanted to say thank you to Sergeant Fig and uh, Chief and Lieutenant for sharing their stories. Um, like I've said it before, I think it's very important to have you guys as senior officers um, slash minorities, a female, um, because you know, it wasn't long ago I was I was a rookie myself at Southeast and you look up to you look up to 
uh, senior officers to uh, to mentor you, for you to follow. Um, and you know, when Sarge was talking about his story about the shooting off of Botham John, and um, it was a long night. I kept hearing about it. I was off. I was off rookie corporal, but I was off on the weekends after the bid, and um, I kept hearing everybody talking about it and how long they were out there and how many people were shot, and obviously it made the news. And after detail, Sarge pretty smoothly says, uh, hey guys, go ahead and write down this number. And I'm writing down the number, and all of a sudden he says, uh, this number's for the psych services. And I know a lot of you guys are younger than five years, and it's for your first critical incident, critical call, people were down, tourniquets, you know, I think we had a couple tw- 27s, fine. right, as well. So, and it was a young crowd because it was a, a party of young kids pretty much. And so <clears throat> I, I, I was impressed, one, because I, I had seen the lack of just communication, um, sometimes from certain watches uh, with that first line of supervision which I think is very important. Um, you know, a lot of times you're a detail and they, they say, oh, we don't have anything else, you know, and then you're, you're, you're off to go answer calls. And in my mind, I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean there's nothing to share? I mean, there's stuff that goes on every day at different shifts that, you know, just one simple, hey, remember to put on your seatbelt or, you know, he took that opportunity to, to, to share that and so then he said, does anybody have anything else? And so then I shared how the ATO um, helped me and my spouse when we lost um, our first baby and we took advantage of the psych services and um, just how the ATO has also stepped up to, you know, financially. Um, I had to have surgery a few years ago as well and here comes uh, Sergeant Ed Lujan looking for me in the narcotics office and he's like, Ms. Mankata, and I'm like, yes, sir. He's like, he just hands me this envelope, and you, know, you open that, and, and that's that's uh, that's help that you need because you're out of work, uh, you're paying for extra bills, and so um, I'm a huge fan of the ATO and just everything that that they do, and um, officers like you guys that are stepping up to help other officers because that's that's very important. Yeah, it's important for us to to lift each other up right and to establish something that's long lasting after we leave right chief we're 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 getting old so we after we're gone we want this to be so established that whoever takes the wheel can drive it with no problems right so another component uh i want to get into is the the owl newsletter the owl stands for officer wellness longevity okay and that's what this is all about we want to we want to ingra- we want to beat into officers' heads that this is a normal conversation to have in this profession. We want officers to have a long career of being well in body, spirit, and mind. Right? That's what we want to. That's the message we want to establish and to. Ha- we want officers to have it in their tool belt. They got all these cool guns and uh, and knives, and they got tourniquets on, and we have a taser. Have these resources with you at all times if you need them. Right? Officers work out all the time. They, if they're if they're lacking in their uh, their shooting, they go to the range and they practice. 
this this wellness is the same thing. You have to be equipped with the resources and also changing the stigma in law enforcement in this in this topic. The newsletter is going to come out probably monthly. Um, we're going to highlight an uh, an officer or or a civilian of the month, and we're going to basically have an interview with them, and we're going to talk about what they do for wellness. and And the people we're going to have on are also handpicked and they're informal leaders, right? So if you're a supervisor out there and you know somebody that you know they deal with it in a in a positive way and they're also an informal leader or they are of someone of high character that they have a story or they have a practice that they do on themselves that they can that people other people can learn from, please reach out to us so we can speak with them. We're also going to have a highlighted mental health professional of the month. Uh the great Dr. T was uh, the highlighted uh, professional for the first owl. Uh, actually, we should get off the elevator. Uh, Demarcus Black, who uh, is the, one of the new uh, uh, wellness unit members, he recognized her from the owl. So he's like, oh, you're Dr. T. Um, we also are going to provide all resources for all psych services. We have bios of the psych service doctors. We have uh, all the assist the officer uh foundation counselors we have we have links that go to directly to substance and alcohol abuse inpatient and outpatient care we just want to equip the officers with every resource that if they need it it's there and it's easy to find and it's all in one place that that newsletter is going to be ever-changing we're going to start doing some videos in video interviews as opposed to just having a bunch of uh, stuff you have to read that way you can see emotion you can see responses and we want you we want you to get to know the doctors that that we um we work with and work with us and we also want you to know your peers that you know people didn't know that that danny canetti has uh, a master's in music and he he does he he's in the classical music and he can play this guy can play <clears throat> several instruments and people don't know that that they don't know that he goes out and tries to climb Mount Rainier by himself. That's what he does to cope, and that's how he recalibrates his mind. I think people can hear that from somebody that's respected on the department, and they could take something from it. And if you help one person, that's more than that. You know that it's worth it. Uh, so the newsletter is going to be uh, ever changing, and it's every month. It's, we want it to look different. We don't want it to be the same thing. You see hanging in the hallways and people walk by a thousand times. We want it to be fresh. We want it to be, I, you know, even with this unit, I, I would like to see this unit not look like in in two years how it did in the first year. It's going to be ever-changing, ever-evolving because the more we learn, we're learning as we go. And we're meeting with professionals like Dr. T and, and the psych doctors, uh, Dr. Hall, Dr. Durr, and, uh, Conway, so that we're learning as we go. And we're picking bits and pieces from uh, from everybody that they they have experiences, they have a passion to help officers, and that's what we want to learn from and build this on. This foundation we want to be very solid. Um, Chief, I want to I want to get you to talk about this. is something that's really big uh, that I, I can't believe has actually happened. Chief Garcia, what we mentioned before, there are several officers that have alcohol related uh, incidents off duty and a lot of officers deal with it uh, uh, with alcohol and in this in this profession it's just it's widespread 
Chief Garcia had just come out with something. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So this was also a product of just some of the recent internal affairs investigations or cases that, that we've had to hear. And, and uh, you know, we see our officers being terminated uh, for DWI arrests and, and uh, you know, some of the other things as well that, that you know, we've talked about earlier uh, that, that involved in, in different uh, disturbances and things alcohol related. And so uh, Chief called me in and just said he wanted to um, create a policy that would afford our officers a benefit of 30 days of paid administrative leave if they came forward prior to uh, a violation, prior to an offense or a policy violation, if they came forward and needed help, that we would, um, uh, you know, we would, we, would, we would offer them 30 days of paid administrative leave to attend help, get that training. And he tasked the wellness unit with identifying locations, and, and, and then the wellness unit ran with it. And uh, they, they found locations, they collaborated with our doctors, psych services, and found some locations that have been vetted in the area that specialize in first responders, uh, the wellness unit will will help with the onboarding process, connecting it with insurance and, and figuring out um, what uh, deductibles or balances might be due. And then the wellness unit is collected uh, through the Blue Guardian and with ATO, um, just uh, some mechanisms where we may be able to assist in, in, in helping out with some of that remaining coverage. So, uh, again, all very forward-thinking, proactive, prior to a crisis, prior to an incident. And that policy is... Um, it's already been sent to the city attorneys. There's still some language pieces, but it's gotten approval uh, from both sides of the freeway uh, on the city hall side as well as the PD side. So we should be uh, we should be announcing it shortly. Yeah, and it's going to be a case by case basis. I mean, every 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 circumstances and every case is going to be different, and and everybody's got different needs, right? But for an officer or for anybody, it, you don't have to be in this profession, for anybody to come forward and be self-aware that they need help and they want to seek help, that's a huge step in recovery. Is, is Doc, you said the first, the, the first thing in, in being resilient is being self-aware, right? And awareness. And that's Chief Garcia, that's Chief Garcia saying he had enough. And he wanted to do something about this throwing out this olive branch and and giving this option to uh to officers that's a big step in our department and in our growth and hopefully to avoid officers falling apart and then us taking a reactive approach right and trying to clean up the mess and then the families and the friends trying to clean up the messes of uh that the officers have found themselves in i want to get some final takes we're going to wrap this up chief what direction do you want this unit to go and why? What was mentioned is, you know, we, we want this thing, A, we know that it is ever-evolving. Uh, we want it to look different next year than it does this year. Um, you know, I guess from just a broader sense, first of all, just make sure that the department understands that this unit is is available to support sworn and non-sworn uh, alike. And we, we recognize the burden that our non-sworn are taking on uh, certainly in those forward positions like 911 and physical evidence section that are out there on the front lines, but but all the support casts, uh, they're equally important. They're all vital to the overall success of this department. So this wellness unit is is uh, designed uh, for 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 everyone on the department and and their families. Um, I think as we um, as we start to get into the operational part of it. Um, the investigative units are, are certainly a part of, of this uh, this initiative. Uh, the proactive component for the investigative 
units and, and this is the tactical and special ops as well is that we are going to set up bi-yearly biannual meetings where twice a year uh, we are going to meet with squads uh, the, the unit and their supervisor and really just talk about what the wellness unit offers the new resources that we found uh, some of the details on on how you get to them you know what it would cost uh, what cost we cover what cost insurance covers just really Again, serve it up to them, make it a, an easy decision where there's no research required by any of our officers, um, payment mechanisms and those types of things so that they understand it and can just take advantage of some of the resources that are available. So we're the checkpoints are on the patrol side uh, as well as the, um, the investigative and special ops side. And then I think, uh, you know, in final thoughts, one of the things that I just want uh, to put out there is that what we're talking about is essentially is changing culture and, and this is a you know there this is a rich culture we're talking 140 years in the making on the dallas police department and um you know we have every intention and we have chief garcia's 100 percent backing to we're going to overcorrect here to to a degree we're we we know that the culture has been the pendulum has been on one side for a long time um and and changing culture is not easy uh, but we have to go all the way to the other extreme now and, 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 you know, get our officers to understand that we have missed the human part of this profession for a long time. And, and, and this is arguably uh, the most human profession out there. This is it's an incredibly emotional profession. It's human beings doing jobs that are really, uh, you know, almost not human. And we're asking, you know, we're, we're putting people in, a, in, in, in some really difficult spots and we've been so so we're going to overcorrect this thing and, and err on the side of supporting our troops empathy compassion and support are words that we don't we don't always hear in this profession and and i will tell you that um we are going to be not only teaching this locally but we're going to be teaching this on a national level uh i'll be teaching it at the international chiefs conference next month or in october there'll be twenty thousand police chiefs there uh, we're going to drive this message home and we're going to do what dallas police has always really uh uh, been meant to do we we are you know like i mentioned earlier we're we may be the ninth largest police department but we're uh this is an iconic uh patch we wear um for those officers that have had the opportunity to travel uh anywhere in this country they know it they they know the way other police departments look at our police department and um it's an honor that that uh you know uh, we we uh we embrace and, and we're going to take the lead on this we're going to take point position and we are going to push a message of empathy, compassion, and support. And we're going to have that message delivered by the right people and, and do everything we can to, to overcorrect and, and change culture and get us back to middle and get us back to, 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 to safe for ourselves uh, and for our families. But it's going to take all of us. I mean, it, 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 is a, it is absolutely going to take all of us. And like Lieutenant Rivera said, it, it may be that... Uh, that new um, rookie on the street and maybe somebody, uh, you know, in the academy doing this, uh, you know, to their to their peers, our senior officers, uh, you know, in command and civilian and non-sworn. It's going to take all of us, but it's worth it. Our families are worth it. Uh, so I'm encouraged. I think we're going to get it done. Um, I do want to add that we we have had a conversation regarding empathy and compassion um, and understanding. Uh, but we as a department, as as a police force, have been told to have this type of attitude feelings towards the public, right? We, we want to be more empathetic. We want to be reaching out, making connections. But 
yes, we are starting to have this conversation. Well, we need to have that with our own officers. We need to treat them like we want them to treat our citizens. So it is important that we pay attention to their emotional health, to their mental health, to their physical health overall, if we want them to be successful whenever they're making citizen contacts. And just to piggyback on that, uh, having a healthy officer, having healthy uh, employees on the Dallas Police Department equals better service for our citizens. And uh, that's what we want. We want our citizens to receive the best that we can offer, and that's ultimately the goal. I just want to say thank you guys for letting me sit at this table with you. Um, Really good humans, and I am so proud of you, and I'm so proud of Dallas for what you guys are doing. Um, One thing I will say is just remember as you are putting this program forward, um, anything worth doing doesn't come without hurdles. So stay the course. Don't be discouraged by a lack of buy-in or low involvement initially or, like Omar, you put it so wonderfully, ill-gained mental attitudes because change is uncomfortable, um, but sometimes change is necessary. So stay the course, and however I can support you guys, I just thank you for that opportunity. Um, And then on the other side of that, what I will say is if you're listening to this and you are someone who could maybe benefit from, you know, utilizing your peer team, I encourage you to look at cost-benefit analysis because sometimes it's not always easy to admit that maybe I need help. It's not easy to be forthcoming in a wellness check with a peer team member. Um, But you got to look at if I don't, you know, what might I lose if I don't? And the benefits of being vulnerable and utilizing a team like this that wants to see so much good and is coming from a place of good do something with those good intentions, actually put it forth into action. Um, So, yeah, again, just really, really refreshing to see what you guys are doing. I know you're going to set the standard for so many other departments. Thank you, Doc. Thank you, Chief. Thank you, Sergeant, Lieutenant, Detective Mercado, Sergeant Mosier sitting in. We're going to work our asses off to to lay this foundation for this unit because it's needed, it's necessary, it's long overdue. And this isn't just me saying this, this is from several of our peers that are that have said this to us. And we could just, we can see from the outside looking in, right, that this is a needed unit. This is a, a, a culture that needs to be changed, right? Police and fire, military, we need to turn this ship around to we want these human beings that are heroes that are doing work like dr t she said one time that this is like a a bad human experiment we sit an individual down for 20 plus years and have them look at image after image after image and we expect them to go out and be normal human beings in in the world and that is just not that's just not feasible that's not attainable right especially in this day and age when you bring in all the other circumstances and the uh with the with the scrutiny that's that's now put on our first responders this is needed we're going to work tirelessly to make sure the owl soars for the dallas police department and we want this unit and this symbol of the owl 
to be recognized throughout the country, and we want to become the standard. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Chief, Lieutenant, Sergeant, and everybody that's going to be a part of this. ATO listeners, till next time. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, Mr. I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. you heavy when the going gets tough I'll be your shoulder together we'll run up from the bottom yeah we'll rise above hey brother hey sister I'll never give up on you hey missus hey I'll see this all the way through No matter how far the sun and the moon I'll never give up on you Never give up